Okay, uh, good morning, folks. I think if we were to try and describe the goal of the church in four words, I would say the work of the church is to encourage, to explain, to enlist, and to establish. I think, uh, does that make us futuristic in an e-church? I don't know. But anyway, uh, to encourage one another as we come together and fellowship together as believers, I think that's one of the best reasons that you can have for coming to church. I mean, you can gather information from podcasts. You can gather information from other preachings and teachings online and in books and all the rest of it. But the real blessing of church is the encouragement that comes from the friendships that you build around as you worship together and serve together. All right? It's the best way for children to grow up in their faith. It's to have that time together and seeing the example lived out, that it's not just mom and dad who do it. There's all these other people of all different ages coming together, and they see the community. Not only that, we're to explain Scripture. Here is what the Word of God is saying. We're not taking cues from other people. We're not taking cues from popular culture, but we're always simply pointing to the Word of God. Some people never open their Bibles, and then they'll sing Christian songs that effectively say, oh, how can we know you? Oh, you're so mysterious. How can we search you and know you? Well, my Bible has about 2,500 pages on it. I reckon God does want to be known. I reckon God does want us to know exactly who he is and know him intimately. The mysteries of Scripture are not that there are things that we cannot possibly know about God. The real mysteries are that we climb the mountains of knowledge that are revealed in Scripture and we climb as high as we can and we grasp as much as we can and as we clear the cloud cover and as we reach the summit, we realize that we have not even begun to climb and ascend the heights of who God is. Those are the mysteries of Scripture. How can we know the depth, the true height of His love? How can we truly know the height of His holiness? How can we truly know the height of His perfection and also His compassion? Those are the real mysteries of Scripture. And so then we, we enlist. Church is not a spectator sport. We are not in the entertainment business. Church is something that we are, not something we do not some, somewhere we go to. It is the body of believers, and so we are to enlist others, to be actively inviting others to Christ, others to come into church, to hear the gospel, to hear the, the word of God explained to them, to have other believers encourage them. And so we enlist, we're drawing people in, and at the same time encouraging other believers to not stand idly by while people that they know are going to die in their sins, we are to actively work in bringing people in to a closer relationship with God. And then finally, we're to establish the work. We are to work in the church so we can take the reins on from those who are going before us. 
who hand us on, who hand on to us the baton of ministry, the baton of, of, of responsibilities in the church, and we establish and we work in such a way that whenever it comes time for us to hand the reins on to someone else, those people find that the work is more stable, is stronger, is better, is more, is whatever it needs to happen to make it more effective. That we are working not just to tread water so that we're not allowed anything to change. Because sometimes people are like that in church. We're not allowed anything to change. That's not our call. Our call is to establish the work, to make it sure it's stronger whenever we hand it over. Not the same. To me, that's the work of the church in four words. Now, to an extent, this is what Paul is communicating to the church in 2 Corinthians it's not really just laid out in four clear-cut sections. It's woven throughout the book. But roughly speaking, the first half dozen chapters, uh, and we'll finish it off tonight. We'll actually finish quite strongly with this in chapter 7 tonight. He's really talking about uh, the encouragement. He's trying to encourage the church, especially in responding in love. People who have been, been sinning, people who have been struggling to get back on track for whatever reason, he says, okay, you have to go out of your way to reaffirm your love to them. And he's also been explaining himself. He's been explaining his travel plans. He's been justifying the, the changes that he's had to make. He's been justifying the uniqueness of his ministry, the uniqueness of the message of the gospel. He's explaining. And then really from next Sunday, we'll see a proper shift happening uh, towards the enlisting and the establishing mindset of a church. For Paul, we'll notice really from next week that there is a mindset change, that, that the emphasis will be stop looking behind you, stop looking to the past, stop looking at people who have hurt you, stop looking at people that have held you down, stop looking at the people who have betrayed you. You have to move forward if you are to function as a church. Because the easiest thing to do, the easiest thing to put off doing what we know we ought to be doing is to talk about what's already happened, right? Well, I, I'm not a member at AEC because, well, uh, a different church and a different set of people hurt me. Doesn't make any sense, but okay. I'm not serving because someone five years ago offered constructive criticism in an unconstructive way. Right, but what about now? I don't go to small groups where I can grow and develop trusting relationships with people because I don't trust those people yet. Well, no, that's, that's why you go to small groups, so you can build those relationships. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, You've got to leave the past where it belongs. You've got to get on with it. And some of you are looking at me, and I can see it in your eyes. You're thinking, well, maybe just skip next Sunday morning. Sounds a wee bit too close to home. Which will only prove my point, because you'll stay in your bed next week because of what happened in the past. What I said. So let's, let's look at what he says in chapter 6. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. You get the impression from Scripture as you read it that Paul knew that not everyone liked him. 
He was the Marmite uh, apostle. He was plain talking, straight shooting, honest love and love of God and love of Scripture. And this verse is a simple plea to people. Look, listen, don't make this ministry that I've been fighting so hard to build. Don't let it be in vain. Don't let this message be wasted on you. See, it would seem back then people, as, as now, they struggle with the idea of grace alone. That getting saved has got nothing to do with them, but rather it is a miraculous work of God in us. It's a work that's about the greatness of God, not about our ability to make him like us more by doing good things, by going to church and by doing these things. You see, the, the legalist will say, no, if you want to make sure that you're going to heaven, you have to live up to a criteria of a Christian. All right, and so you have to live at a standard, okay? You're not allowed to get tattoos, or you're not allowed to drink alcohol, or you're not allowed to socialize with these people. You're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this. And generally speaking, it's a criteria that they have made up because it's the standard that they live to, all right? And generally speaking, then, that's what they'll say everyone else has to do. Uh, just copy me. Well, what about that guy who does, he doesn't, oh, no, 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 just, just me. But the truth is that it's pride. It's pride that says whenever I do X, Y, and Z, or when I don't do A, B, and C, or when I stop other people from doing these things, God can't help but love me more. And blessings will come to me as a result of God being moved by my greatness, by my righteousness, by my lifestyle rather than really the blessings come because we are moved by his greatness, okay? Totally different, totally different. Grace says that God loved me as a sinner. In fact, Romans 5 says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if he loved me whenever I wasn't even trying, when he loved me when I was openly rebelling against him, whenever I couldn't have cared less about what God thought about me, if he loved me enough to die for me at that point, he's not going to love me less now that I am his child. He's not going to put conditions on it now that I belong to him. It's not going to diminish because I am adopted. And I, I understand the arguments. I understand the counters that come to this. People will say, yes, but if you go too far, the other way, people will let sin abound just so that grace can abound them more. But that ignores one crucial reality of being a child of God. It's not rules and regulations. It's a relationship. I want to spend time with my best friends more than my regular friends. I want to spend time with my wife over the company of any other woman. I want to spend time with my children more than any other children. Because when you love people, when you prioritize people, when you know their value and you know their worth, you long for their presence. Grace gives us the ability to pursue and long for the presence of God. There is another group that's at work in the Corinthian church. It's not just legalists. It's not just the Judaizers. There's another group that's emerging called the Gnostics. Now, don't confuse them with agnostics, okay? There's a lot of agnostics about today. Agnostics claim that nothing is total, totally knowable. 
that, that, that listen, you can't say for sure. I mean, they're believing something over there. They're believing something over here. I believe something. So, I mean, who is to say for sure? I'm a spiritual person. I'm a religious person. But hey, look, listen, nobody knows for sure. The Gnostics, on the other hand, say the opposite. They believe that everything is totally knowable. Now, the backstory is long and unnecessary, but their conclusion is simply that Jesus cannot, is, is not enough to save you, that uh, creation was not by him. Uh, it, it was a, a rebellious emanation from the Father, blah, 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 all the rest of it. But the story is, is unnecessary. Salvation is more complicated. You need a special insight. You need to be part of our special group. You need to be part of our inner circle. You need that special insight. You need a special dispensation. And only then can you truly be saved when you know all the mysteries of the world. It's a cult, a club of upper levels, like the Freemasons and others, just, just as dangerous. And so two influential groups in a city like Corinth, the legalists, and the Gnostics. And so they have a real big issue with grace. They want to add all these rules and regulations of one shape or another on top of it. And so Paul pleads with the church, don't let this wonderful, beautiful, powerful message of grace be in vain. Don't just get saved and then start adding in all these things that suck your joy away. Don't let other philosophies sway you. And this is going to be the big theme of this chapter, okay? The big theme of this, this sermon, okay? It's about the, the, the things having influence in our lives. Do you see that Paul's experiencing something that maybe a lot of people have experienced in Northern Ireland? Especially if you've tried to witness to people. Religious people can be the hardest people to reach, right? All right, you know? They're the hardest people to reach because they say, oh, no, no, look, it's, it's, I, I, I got christened whenever I was a baby, so I mean, I'm sad. I mean, I, I, I go to the church up the road, you know, at Christmas time and Easter time. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm religious. If it was good enough for my parents, it was good enough for their parents. And it was good enough for their parents. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for my kids. Grace will always seem in vain for cultural Christians but never for converted ones. If you're ever fortunate to go to Israel, there's a little west, in the little West Bank town of Bethlehem, there's a very strange church in it. It was built by the Roman Emperor Constantine's mother, Queen Helena. And um, because the church has a very small, narrow door, not the big traditional, you know, huge double doors, it's designed so that when you go into the church, you have to buy. Coming into the presence of God, you must bow your head. It's called the door of humility. See, Jesus said that the way is narrow and hard and few find it. The truth is it's hard to find the narrow way because there are few people willing to bow and humble themselves before God and say, you know what? I can't fix this. I am a sinner. I am flawed. I am broken. I can't change the inside, I can change the outside, I can dress it up a little bit, but the inside is the same. All I can do is confess, I am a sinner. Few people are willing to do that. And so then Paul describes some of his experiences. We've put no obstacle in anyone's way. 
so that no fault can be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. What a contrast there. And and, and he's going back to that temporal, to the eternal. Listen, I I mean, at Bible college, I had to do a little bit of Hebrew, I had to do a little bit of Greek, I had to do, you know, Old Testament history and and blah, blah, blah. I think this should be a requisite, uh, 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 should be an essential part of a Bible college course. If you want to serve the Lord, this is what it's going to take. This is the path that you're going to choose to take. This is what it means to pick up your cross and follow Him. God has decided that the way He will communicate a life-changing, glorifying message of the gospel is through those who have responded to Him. And yet, isn't it strange that the biggest hindrance to the gospel is those very people who he has chosen to use to share the message? Think about it. How many times have you heard someone say, oh, I'm not going to become a Christian? Sure, these are all hypocrites. Truth is, we're not hypocrites. Unless you're one of those people who claims to be perfect. I don't think there's any of them here this morning. We never claim to be perfect. What we claim to be is imperfect people who have been forgiven. And these excuses are often excuses and reasons that people have to shift the conversation from their sin back onto our sin, from their imperfections onto our imperfections. Because let's be honest, unsaved people love a church scandal. It manages, you know, none of the people in the soups manage to go to church, but for some reason there's always a vicar that shows up that has some scandal going on, or there's something that's happening, and it's like, well, we love a church scandal. And oh, they're so quick to point out the hypocrisy. They're so quick to see our our mistakes, and boy, do they remember them. And listen, it's not fair. But you know what? I think at some point we have to look at ourselves for giving them so much ammunition, don't we? Remember in 2 Samuel 12, the, the prophet Nathan confronts David for his affair with Bathsheba. Uh, and listen, the King James and the New American Standard Version uh, put it like this. Uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 14 says, By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You've given them ammunition. And Paul is saying, look, look at us. Look at how we've conducted ourselves. Look at how we're living in such a way that we're not giving anyone any ammunition to use against us. By how we live, by what we do, we're not begging for money. We're not going around cap in hand. We're not making it awkward or being duplicitous in any way. It is hard, but we are going out of our way to make sure no one gets tripped up by it. Like, he's saying, look, I don't want to be the guy who stops someone from putting their life in Christ. I don't want to be the person who stops someone who, from, from getting saved. I don't want to have to be the person who says to God, I, yeah, I'm the reason that they're not here. It's a 
powerful mindset to live with, isn't it? Let me just pick some, a few things out from the list here. Verses 4 to 5 talk about the tough circumstances. Verse 6 to 7, you've got this real flavor of the fruit of the Spirit colliding with the armor of God. You've got the, kind of these two great lists in Scripture, and they're kind of being merged together here. I think sometimes Christians think that you live a certain way whenever things are going well, and then when things start going badly, you get to kind of say, right, well, I'm going to put the fruit away because hey, it was tough. What was I supposed to do? What else would I just did what anyone else would have done? It's okay to bend the rules whenever you're really under the cosh. It's okay to compromise whenever you don't have a choice. Paul is saying if we are to give ourselves fully over to Christ, if we're going to truly live for him, we will have outer struggles, but we will have that inner strength to match it. We must have that inner strength to match it. That there will be weapons in our left and our right hand in a spiritual fight, you can't pull your punches. You've got weapons, and the enemy will use theirs. We must use ours for the fight. And in, in, the, in, in this, the idea is that you have the shield of faith in your left and the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, in your right hand. And so there are times when we have to be defensive and say, okay, I'm not going to lash out at this. I'm going to just make sure that we are safe. I'm going to make sure that we are defended. And there's other times when we have to attack. If you're a Christian this morning and you've been here because you've been accused of something, you've been complained about simply because you're living out your faith, maybe it's something at work or maybe it's something in school, maybe it's something. Scripture says that following the Great Commission will bring great opposition because some people will just be irritated by the idea of you before you've even met them, before you've even walked into the room. They've already decided that they're against you. They've already decided that they're offended. Even though you've done nothing wrong, it's part of the battle. By the way, nobody is universally liked, okay? There's always going to be, even if you are not a Christian, there's still going to be people who are not going to like you because of who you are, okay? So if you're not going to be liked, you might as well not be liked for a real reason, for something of value. They, they say that if you follow Acts 1.8, you've got to expect Acts 8 verse 1. To be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, guess what? Whenever we do that, there will arise on a day of great persecution. If you're going to push, expect pushback. If you're getting pushback, don't be afraid to push back. The best way to escape all the hassle, though, to, if it's getting too much, the easiest thing to do, zip, quiet, say nothing. I heard about a family, their parents were so, so protective of their, their son growing up. They didn't allow him to go out anywhere. They didn't let him do anything. They wanted to shelter him in his little Christian faith. But the time came for their son to go off to university. And after a week or two, his flight landed and he came back home. Well, son, how did you get on? How, how, how was it being a Christian on campus? Mom, dad, it was brilliant. Nobody suspects a thing. That's not what we've been called to. If we are faithful, if we are obedient, if we are delighting in knowing him, people will see. And then in verse 8 to 10, we have the paradox of the ministry. It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Rejoice. And be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Again, eyes off the temporary, eyes on the eternal. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we don't rejoice because we, we are enjoying the pain, all right? We're not sadistic. We're not, we're not enjoying the pain. We're not, but we're, rather, we're rejoicing because we're conscious of the company that we keep. We, we recognize the great people of faith that we're emulating at this moment. We're there with Jeremiah. We're there with Isaiah. We're there with Paul and Peter. We're there with Joseph and Jesus and Gideon and the others. But notice, though, there's an assumption here in Jesus' words. There is an assumption that you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That they're going to falsely accuse you because, but you're living for Christ, and it's a false accusation. It's one thing to speak righteously and act righteously, and people not like you for it. It's a different thing for being persecuted because you're one of those weird Christians. You know the type. He's picking fights. He quotes random verses that are kind of out of context, but winds people up. Is inconsistent. Is obnoxious to talk to. Will say one thing but not live up to it. Okay, verses eleven to thirteen. He talks about feeling responsible, being a spiritual father to them. Then we get to verse fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and make and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then, okay, notice that word. Then, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Building on what we've said, we've talked about influences. Don't allow the Gnostics, don't let the legalists come in and corrupt you and don't let the message of grace be in vain. Paul keeps going weird to be distinctive in this world. Now, the yoke here might be unfamiliar with most people in 2019, okay? It's not about how you like your eggs in the morning, okay? A yoke is a farming tool that um, was used to bind two animals together so that they could pull a a plow or something like that um, and they could... um, be set in, in the same direction and they go straight. So the picture is of a, a believer and an unbeliever, and it's a reference to what the Mosaic law says in Deuteronomy 22. In Deuteronomy, Je- no, I'll, st- I'll say that word again. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, Moses writes that the law demands that you plow with animals of the same species. It says you cannot plow with an ox and a donkey. The ox is considered clean. The donkey is considered an unclean animal. And it's about the separation, the distinctiveness of the believer. The law was pick the same species. Two ox will walk the same way, at the same pace. They are the same size. They have the same strength. They have the same temperament. They have the same values, as it were. Uh, that's how you ply. That's how a good farmer will ply. You can't put two different animals that have two different strengths, that are going to have two different ideas about how this is going to go. That doesn't work. 
And so the idea is if you're going to go into a binding relationship with someone, you've got to make sure that it doesn't hinder how you walk. Because if they're a different species, if they're a different animal altogether, they're going to try and, it's going to impact how you walk. It's going to impact how the field gets plowed. It's a rule about fellowship with believers and fellowship with unbelievers. Now, in the context of 2 Corinthians, it's not about dating, okay? And I know that that's almost exclusively how that verse is taught. Everyone turns to the teenagers and says, be careful who you date. The context is false teachers of various colors and creeds and legalists and Gnostics says, listen, you can't play at church when they are doing something that is totally out of line of Scripture. Don't get committed to them. Don't get sucked into it. You see, across denominations in the Christian faith, there, there will be some different theologies. There will be some slightly different variations, but it's like a brown cow and a black cow. It's still the same animal. Yes, there are some differences, but their surface level, you can still see a cow is a cow. But sometimes... You come across preachers, you come across churches, you come across theology and doctrine, and you look at it and you say, that's a different animal. Don't get yoked to that. Now, for us, it can be applied out. We can bring that same thought out in how we do business or the clubs and societies and boards that we get involved in, or PTAs, is committing to them going to compromise our Christian values? Is it going to stop us walking the walk with Christ that we ought to be walking? Will it hinder it? Now, I firmly believe the best way to protect our schools at the minute, with all the regulations and all the legislation that's being imposed, the best way to protect them at the minute is to get on the board of governors in these places, to get on the PTAs in these places and protect them from the inside. At the minute, the legislation are guidelines for schools. But if you've got unbelievers in all those boards, in all those areas of influence, those guidelines will become legislation. But if we've got people on those boards of governors, if we've got people in the PTAs fighting the case, at least those guidelines can stay just as guidelines. We've got far more influence to protect our children. But we have to be careful that our commitments do not hinder our walk. I'm, I'm sorry, but it does also apply to who we date and who we marry. Because it's not just the case that that person, well, they, they don't read as much as I do, or they don't pray like I do. The Bible said, no, no, they're a different animal altogether. They are a different animal. This isn't going to bode well for your walk. And you can ask anyone who's married to someone at the minute who's not a believer, they will tell you that the Christian comes down to their level more than the unbeliever comes up to their level. Well, I, I don't come out to church anymore on Sunday evenings because it makes my husband, it makes my wife, it makes my girlfriend, it makes my boyfriend feel lonely. Well, they're not going to be lonely if they come out to church, but it doesn't work like that. Sure it doesn't, because we end up staying at home with them. It's two different animals pulling in two different ways. And so, yeah, guess what? I'm agreeing with God on this, Okay. I can always say, well, unless, or well, in these set of circumstances, no, 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 no. Listen, the Bible says, no, don't yoke them together. Don't get in binding relationships with these people. So I'm going to say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to say that God knows better than we do. If in doubt, stick to what God says. 
It's black and white. He wants you to be fulfilled. And so if you're telling me, oh, he's the one and he's not a Christian, I'm going to go and say, I don't think he is. He's not. Because God knows more than you do. So maybe you need to appreciate that maybe you're the one who's out of step there, not God. Remember Samson? Strong physically, weak morally. He had a leaning towards the, the non-Jewish ladies in, in the area. Uh, and his enemies targeted him for that, not just Delilah, there were others. And it ended up costing his walk, costing his life. Now, are you telling me that there were zero pretty Jewish girls for him to get along with? That there were zero pretty Jewish ladies in all of Israel for him to marry? Come on. But his heart was wrong. It hindered his walk. It cost him his life. So yes, we are to be in the world. We're to engage and to enlist in those other E words that we started off with, but it's about having the wisdom to discern the context and how we engage and enlist for there must be distinctiveness in our walk. 1 Corinthians 5 says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolatry or violent drunkard or swindler to not even eat with such a one. He's saying, listen, there are people who will say, tell you that they're Christians. Their lifestyle will tell you if that's true or not. And so if they're telling you one thing, but their lifestyle doesn't back it up, you look at their lifestyle. You look at the fruit. That will tell you. So it doesn't matter if he, saved or if he says he's saved. Don't allow yourself to get conned. Yoked to the wrong person, it will hinder your walk. Now, verses 15 to 18 continues that theme of distinctiveness. The context is what is true, what is false. We live in a generation of syncretism, uh, and it's pushed on every daytime TV show where everyone has part of that truth, the, the agnostic idea. Uh, we say, you know, we can't say that somebody else is wrong because, you know, they're just seeing it from a different perspective. You know, so whether they call it Jesus or Muhammad, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether you call God uh, Buddha or Krishna or Vishnu or Allah or whatever. As long as the prayer's going up, <laughs> it's all good. That's syncretism, or, or you get it all mixed together. Now, of course, it's a nonsense. It sounds nice as a soundbite, but all these theologies are ex totally exclusive. They are mutually exclusive. So they may all be wrong, but they can't all be right. Okay, the monotheistic religions like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, talk about an afterlife, heaven and hell. Um, they disagree on how to get there, whether it's Islam's five pillars, the Jewish uh, sacrifice system, or Christianity, who is Christ at the center. But you've got pantheistic religions, ones like uh, Buddhism and uh, Hinduism that have many gods. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in that. They believe in reincarnation. And so Hinduism, they don't even agree with the Buddhists. Hinduism says that your identity will go from one form into another. So you'll come back as a butterfly or you'll come back as a millionaire or you'll come back as a zebra, whatever it happens to be, but you will, you, it will be you in a different form. But Buddhism says, no, that doesn't work like that. Your energy just is released into the universe. And it could come back, but it's, your essence kind of just scatters. So all of a sudden, with one simple doctrine, okay, what happens after you die? Every major world religion has a very different idea. 
So like I could do that all day <laughs> with world religions. But listen, do not let the world dictate your views. Don't let it dictate your faith to you. The gospel is not on the back foot. Some Christians may be on the back foot, but the gospel is not. We should be brave, we should be courageous, and we should trust the gospel. We should trust that scripture holds up to scrutiny because it does. It does. And look, look at the last few verses here of 2 Corinthians. Paul weaves together verses from Leviticus, Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and, and there's influences from a couple of others as well. And his point is this. It's not a negative. It's a positive. All this stuff, if you're looking at the wrong things, you're missing out on the best thing. That's the point. It's not saying, we well, don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do that because we, we want you to be miserable. We want to deny you things because that makes you religious somehow. It's no, no. By, by letting go of the things that the world has, you can obtain a closer walk with God. And that's, that's what we want. That's the best thing. Okay, so it's not about prohibition. It, it's permission. Look to God that you might have real light, real love. Verse 17, look, it, it's conditional. We go out from them and then I accept you. There's a welcome here. There's a relationship here as a, not just a savior, but as a father. And so Paul is asking the church in Corinth to pursue a holy, distinctive lifestyle so that they might have intimacy with God. Not that they might feel good about themselves or be self-righteous. How do we do that? We watch what our influences are. We make sure our commitments and our company doesn't hinder our walk. See, the person who's going to change the world for God is not going to be changed by the world. Romans 12 puts it as, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you might prove what is good. Listen, you know everyone's got an opinion on how you live your life, right? For those of you who are teenagers and early 20s, all right, you know how it is. Everyone's got an opinion of what you have to wear, who you should date, what job you should do, what subjects you should study, who you should date, and on all the rest of it. And it'll come from your parents, yes, but it'll come from your friends in what you should look like and, and how you sh- who you should date. It'll come from media. It'll come from your boyfriend. It'll come from your girlfriend. It'll come from yourself and the inward pressure that you put on yourself. But it doesn't really change when you get older. Sure, it doesn't. When you're older, you're still under pressure. Our level of lifestyle, our level of income, the measure of our success, the measure of our drive, the measure of, of uh, it comes from the same places. Competing with friends, competing with neighbors, competing with siblings. And all of these things, when, when those things are driving us and motivating us, they're going to hinder our walk. Because it impacts our desire to be distinctive. Because what we want to do most is fit in. What we want most is to, is to be seamless with the world, not distinctive. Because people talk and put pressure on us, and we want to fit in, we want to be liked. And there's a tension then between what God is calling us to be and what the world is calling us to be. So, folks, be careful with your influences, be careful of the crowd that you keep. It may be a subtle hindrance, but it is going to hinder how you walk for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,